From WFIU in Bloomington, Indiana, I'm Kate Young, and this is Earth Eats. There's a feeling to it that's kind of satisfying that way. It doesn't feel like so much we could survive on it as we're able to provide some of our sort of staple foods. On today's show, we visit a farm east of Bloomington to speak with Denise and Sean Breeden-Ost about growing food, preserving food, and eating food. We check out their dry bean threshing techniques and reflect on the notion of self-sufficiency in the midst of a pandemic. That's coming up after the news, so stay with us. is produced from the campus of Indiana University in Bloomington, Indiana. We wish to acknowledge and honor the indigenous communities native to this region and recognize that Indiana University is built on indigenous homelands and resources. We recognize the Miami, Delaware, Potawatomi, and Shawnee people as past, present, and future caretakers of this land. Let's go to Renee Reed for Earth Eats News. Hi, Renee. Hi, Kate. President-elect Joe Biden has chosen a familiar face as Secretary of Agriculture. Biden's choice, former Iowa Governor Tom Vilsack, previously served as Agriculture Secretary under the Obama administration. Aaron Lehman, the president of the Iowa Farmers Union, says Vilsack has a long history of working with farmers and ranchers in the state. He says he hopes Vilsack tackles increasing consolidation. This bottleneck um, limits our options for what we purchase as inputs and where we can sell our products on the market. And so dealing with this level of concentration will be extremely important. As head of the U.S. Department of Agriculture, Vilsack will oversee not only farmers, but nutrition programs such as school lunches and food stamps. Vilsack was already the longest serving Secretary of Agriculture since 1969. An effort to prevent farmer suicides is likely to reach a vote on the Senate floor this week. Iowa Republican Senator Chuck Grassley says it would bring training and other resources to farm service agency workers in county offices. He says they would learn to recognize signs that someone might need help, but they would not become health advisors. But the idea is to get people to family members or to uh, ministers uh, of a faith or doctors or mental health people to help intervene to save people's lives. During the farm crisis of the 1980s, the devastation from losing farms and being overcome by debt led to some farmers taking their own lives. In more recent years, an uptick in rural suicides that coincided with lower crop prices brought renewed attention to the issue. Thanks to Amy Mayer and Seth Bodine of Harvest Public Media for those reports. For Earth Eats News, I'm Renee Reed. Picture beans growing on a plant. They're in a pod, a long, green, somewhat skinny pod. Now picture them dried. The pod has turned a pale beige color, it's papery, and the bean inside has hardened and dried. 
Now the beans are ready to thresh. In a greenhouse attached to a barn at Sean and Denise Breeden Ost's farm, wooden tables are lined with white sheets and piled with dried bean plants ready to be threshed. Working together, they each gather two corners of one of the sheets and pull a mess of dried bean plants out of the greenhouse and onto the gravel driveway. They cover the dried plants with a second sheet and then they walk on them. They aren't particularly gentle about it. Apparently the beans are pretty tough. The point is to loosen the dry beans from their pods. They stop periodically to check on the progress and refold the sheet. And then they walk on them some more. When we harvest them, there's a, there's a timing, there's a real trick of timing that's, you're kind of uh, splitting the difference between them be, you want them to be dry enough that they won't mold before they get crispy and dry. But you also want them to be uh, not so dry that they shatter out of the pods when you're picking them in the field. So that takes some guesswork every year. I'm taking the, the chaff, the vines, you know, the broken up vines and, and pods and everything and uh, lifting them off of the beans that are down on the sheet kind of shaking out any loose beans that are hiding in there. So we end up with just beans and little lightweight stuff left on the sheet, like the small pieces. Okay. And then we're gonna winnow that with a fan. And this is all basically made up. This isn't like the way that we, that you do this. This is just the way that it seems to work for us. <laughs> a lot of people thresh their beans by hitting them with sticks or like the traditional, um, flail, which is a tool that you use to thresh things. It's like two sticks with a chain holding them together so you can get more force with with your swing because you've got that momentum on the uh -huh. moving piece. But for me, walking on things is just like easier than waving my arms around. And When people used to thresh grain, they would have a, a really tight floor somewhere in their barn or their house and they would have a threshold at the door that keeps the grain from spilling out. So they'd throw it all in there and then they'd thresh it and, you know, <laughs> flail at it until it all came out. And then they, then they, it would all be held in that floor. But, you know, we didn't want to do it in our house and we're not really, we don't really want this much dust even in the barn. So we use sheets for a lot of things. <laughs> Old sheets are something that we kind of inherited some of with this house. There were, you know, sheets that didn't fit any of our beds. And, so sheets have been a good farm tool. They're good to harvest the beans into and carry them. They're just kind of our tarps. Once they're satisfied that most of the beans are out of the pod, it's time for winnowing. I think the thing I find really satisfying about this particular job is that it's like you're using your body weight and gravity and wind. You know, it's just so, like the most basic technology. <laughs> yeah. What are these called again? This is called Taylor Dwarf Horticultural. And it's sort of like a pinto cranberry kind of bean, striped. And we usually cook these into what, when I was a kid, we just called beans and cornbread. Beans cooked with onions and celery and peppers and things, and then served with cornbread is kind of the classic way I like this kind of bean. 
but we grew a lot this year so we might find lots of new ways. <laughs> Eventually, they transfer the beans to a wide metal bowl and place it close to the fan to winnow the finer particles away. Might be as far as I would take them, and then, and then I'll just pick through them by hand, you know, sort through them by hand before we uh, have them in our jar to cook. So what I usually do then is I'll, I'll spread these out like on a cookie sheet. And, and just move the good ones to the side and, and move the other stuff to the other side. It's recommended yeah. to do that with store-bought beans yeah. to look for stones and stuff. I wish I'd done it. Recently we bought some black beans and found a rock. I mean, the size of a black bean. I bit down on it and thought I'd broken my thing. Denise remembered a poem that she found in Maud Herjoffrey's World Vegetarian Cookbook. It's something she thinks about when she's sorting beans that makes her feel connected to women around the world. A lentil, a lentil, a lentil, a stone. A lentil, a lentil, a lentil, a stone. A green one, a black one. A green one, a black, a stone. A lentil, a lentil, a stone, a lentil, a lentil, a word. Suddenly a word, a lentil. A lentil, a word, a word next to another word, a sentence, a word, a word, a word, a nonsense speech, then an old song, then an old dream, a life, another life, a hard life, a lentil, a life, an easy life, a hard life. Why easy? Why hard? Lives next to each other. A life, a word, a lentil. A green one, a black one. A green one, a black one, pain. A green song, a green lentil. A black one, a stone. A lentil, a stone, a stone, a lentil. Cleaning Lentils was written by the Istanbul-based Armenian poet Zahrad. The poem was read by Denise Breeden-Ost. After a short break, we'll sit down with Denise and Sean Breeden-Ost to talk about growing staple foods, and we'll wonder about what kind of apocalypse you might be preparing for. Stay with us. Kate Young here. This is Earth Eats. Regular Earth Eats listeners might remember my audio essay from earlier this year in the spring about pandemic gardening trends. I was curious about the notion of first-time gardeners planning to survive the year on food from their veggie patch. Then later in the summer, I learned that a couple of growers with many years of experience had planted a decent amount of beans for drying 
and corn for cornmeal. And I thought, well, they might be growing enough food to survive on. These particular farmers also grow and put up a lot of fresh produce from their garden. You know, canning, freezing, drying, curing. So perhaps they could be eating their garden's bounty all year long. And then I started to think about the more complicated notion of self-sufficiency. I knew that these growers were thoughtful people, so I sat down for a conversation with Denise and Sean Breeden-Ost. They were the ones you just heard threshing beans and reading poetry. We talked about growing enough food, growing too much food, the pleasures of working with plants, and the tendency to personalize your apocalypse fantasies to suit your skill set. Denise and Sean live on a hilly and somewhat forested patch of land east of Bloomington, about a 20-minute drive from downtown. Sean grew up on the property. He and Denise, and until recently their son, who just left for college, live up on a hill, and Sean's brother lives down in the valley. While the woods can be dense, there are plenty of large clearings for growing food. Sean has been a market farmer for decades, Denise is a writer, but she has also played an active role in the farm over the years. They no longer grow food for market, but the growing of food has not stopped. What kinds of food do you grow? A lot of greens, tomatoes, tomatoes peppers. Uh, potatoes. Sweet potatoes. Corn. Summer and winter squash, turnips and rutabagas. Beans. And onions, and garlic. Mm, okra, hot peppers. Blueberries. Cucumbers. We grow a lot of peaches, but the squirrels eat those greens, so we don't actually eat those. But we do grow them. We have a lot of asparagus. Yeah, asparagus. Shiitake mushrooms. That might be a pretty good basil. summary. Basil. <laughs> <laughs> How do you determine what to grow? Well, it's based on what we like, really. We kind of sit down with the seed catalogs in January and talk about what we want to grow and it's it's pretty consistent i mean it's it's the foods that we like to eat and that we know we can grow here and then you know we try something new every once in a while we've given up on some things that we don't that don't do well here or that we're just not very good at like what's an example of that well pole beans we love pole beans but putting up the trellis and we had a uh, bean mosaic a few years ago, and we pretty much decided to stop with the pole beans and just go with the bush beans. Mosaic virus. Oh, it killed it. And if you have, if you have bush beans and something happens to them, you can just replant. You can till them in if the bean beetles or the disease or something gets bad and plant another row. But with pole beans, you're kind of invested for the whole season. And so mm -hmm. we, we went with the bush beans. Mm -hmm. We don't. We can't grow very good spinach. Mm -hmm. up here and Sean's brother down in the valley grows great spinach so we just don't bother <laughs> um, we've never had great luck with beets but I, I think that was mostly just neglect I'm not sure so there are a few things that just haven't haven't thrived our sweet potatoes we've experimented with over the years and some of them didn't do well here and some did and so it's more of a variety choice tomatoes for years we had a two-week tomato season because of disease pressure, and we finally found 
a couple of varieties that we can grow. And they, we had a full tomato season this year. It was so exciting. <laughs> it's like, wow, there are still tomatoes out there. So we're, we're, uh, a lot of it is choosing the varieties that like it here. And so when you're growing, are you also thinking about, or when you're picking your seeds or deciding what to grow, are you also thinking about food preservation? Yeah, mm-hmm. we, we definitely grow to put up. I mean, that's part of, at least with a lot of our crops, that's part of what we're doing. And I have, I have records of how much food we've put up in the past for the past, I don't know, 10 years or so that I've been doing that. And so I can look back and say, okay, last year I put up this much and we did or didn't eat it all. And how did that go? And so this year I want this much instead. And, and so we've kind of tweaked the amounts over time for what, what seems to work for us. It made a huge difference because I was starting pretty much, I mean, that's food preserving. I had an aunt who did a lot of it, but it's not something that my parents did and not something I learned to do when I was at home. So as a, as an adult, I was learning how to do that. And so I did, I took a lot of notes. I was like, here's what I, here's what I put up. Here's how I did it. And here's how it turned out. And here's when we ran out of it. And it let me gradually it let me feel like I was learning rather than just starting again every year yeah also I could see where you know having an understanding of did we use this like we froze all this broccoli but we didn't like how it tasted so we never used it and then it's got freezer burn and you know sat there in the freezer all year that's one of them and I hate wasting food. And mm-hmm. so, yeah, it was really important to me to not. And I, it's not just wasting food because, I mean, if we don't put up all of our tomatoes and some of them rot, we just throw them in the compost and then they go back to the soil and whatever. But if I've put in hours and hours of labor and propane and, <laughs> and jars and lids and all of that, then it feels like a bigger waste. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I'm pretty, I pretty much, I want to make sure that we eat everything I put up as much as possible. So yeah, I do, do write it down. Mm-hmm. And things like potatoes, we know how many pounds we'll eat before they sprout. And so when we harvest, we see how much we have and then we keep what we're gonna use and then we give the rest away. So. We usually keep more than we'll use. And then right before they start to sprout, we call up our friends and we <laughs> say, can you eat a bunch of potatoes in the next two weeks? And they're like, sure. And, <laughs> and share them around then. But we're getting better at it. Yeah. yeah. Do you have an idea about you want to eat mostly the produce that you grow yourselves throughout the year? Or is it just kind of seeing what you can do? Or I don't know if you want to talk a little bit about some of the values or goals that you have that are associated with that. I think over time, we've just kind of learned to like the stuff that we grow. And we don't really desire other things that we can't grow, like things that are out of season and we're happy with collards. We don't have to have lettuce if we don't have it. And so it's not really that we're, our goal is to provide all of our food. We just know how much we need to grow. And we grow what we know we can. And we enjoy what we grow. My friend Stacy said one time that, that uh, something like if you, if you want to produce your own food, you it's better to start instead of growing everything you want to eat you should start with eating everything you can grow 
And, and that's really, we're not real recipe users. I mean, we use recipes for inspiration, but we really start with the food we have, which helps a lot because, you know, if you look at a recipe, every recipe is going to call for like a scallion or something. And scallions are not something we have in January, but yeah, we, I mean, we buy produce, we buy avocados and yeah, we, do. we buy a little bit of fruit and odds and ends. And after we run out of potatoes, we will buy some potatoes and mm-hmm. I buy okra at the farmer's market every year because I'm not very good at keeping okra picked and so we grow it but it doesn't really work and I only want one batch of it anyway so I just buy that um but there there was a while when Glenn was little um there were there were probably five years or more where we we grew and preserved all the produce we ate except for a little bit of fruit I'm not sure why it, it was definitely, like, that was in my mind, was that was what I wanted to do. And some of it may have just been finding out if it was possible, finding out if I could. But yeah, we pretty much ate only the vegetables we grew for quite a few years. And then Glenn got older and he was like, I want a salad. And so we <laughs> we got flexible. Or I want mangoes. I'm yeah, sick of blueberries. <laughs> so that, you know, part of it was it changed as as our family changed. And then there are things like olive oil and maybe flour and stuff that you're you're not going to be growing so you're going to be purchasing those things. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, we, yeah and we sugar, salt, flour, oils, lots of different beans and grains mm-hmm. and nuts and seeds mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. we buy a lot of food. Yeah. But we don't buy we don't buy a lot of fresh produce. Most of our fresh produce is something that we have, and and much of our off-season produce, too, is something that we grew. So what kinds of things do you put up when you you do food preservation? What are some examples? Frozen peppers, dried peppers, paprika, tomato juice, relish, Mm -hmm. jam, uh, dry beans and corn, Mm -hmm. frozen Mm -hmm. green beans. Frozen greens. Frozen greens, mm-hmm. frozen pesto. And we just made candied ginger for the first time. That was kind of cool. From from market ginger. Yeah, from Fresh local. Ginger. That was cool. It's very good. Um, potatoes and and winter squash and sweet potatoes, which you don't have to do anything to. Um, mm-hmm. You just have to give them the right conditions to not rot. <laughs> yeah. And uh, what else do we put up? It seems like. I don't have my notebook out. Um, lots of frozen blueberries. You grow enough blueberries that you can put them up for a whole winter. Oh, yeah. Mm. We put up, in 2019, we put up like 40 gallons mm-hmm. frozen. And so I'm, we, we eat those, you know, in pancakes or things, but I also make blueberry jam sort of continuously through the whole year, and that's, our, that's the jam that we like. And mm-hmm. so we eat it for breakfast every day. <laughs> <laughs> And our famous blueberry smoothie. Yeah, the blueberry smoothies in the summer. Sunflower seeds and blueberries and a little bit of honey and some water. It's breakfast. I mean, you said something earlier, Sean, about kind of adjusting your tastes and your desires to what you have and accepting. You know, like you said, Glenn was like, I'm tired of blueberries. <laughs> yeah, and... I I think that's evolved over the years. I guess I've always liked garden produce. 
I've learned to like quite a few things over the years. I, I've Sean has never been a picky eater, but I I was, you know, I didn't really love brassica family greens and arugula grossed me out and I hated cilantro and I didn't like melons and I didn't like cucumbers and I've gradually over the years I've actually come to like some of those which in some cases it was really exciting because I always wanted to like melons I just didn't and in others it was like arugula you know still if I didn't have arugula ever again I wouldn't cry but if it happens to be the green we have and I want some greens to go in something, I'll use it and be happy with it. So there's a, I don't know, it's kind of a, I'm a little more flexible than I was. We did, I mean, we had some conversations when Glenn was 14 or 15 or so about like, why do we have these juicy tomatoes that make a mess when I eat them on my sandwich? We should go to the store and buy a proper sandwich tomato that is dry and crunchy. (laughs) (laughs) That doesn't turn into slop, you know? So So I could, it was interesting to actually hear him working through that and coming up with his own opinions because it never would occur to me to buy a different kind of tomato. It's like, well, we've got these tomatoes, Mm -hmm. but, but I can see how, you know, it's possible to have some other, other way of working with produce, but that, you know, we've, we've gotten used to this. It's kind of what we do. Yeah, I've always been re- resistant to a CSA because I was afraid I would waste the food. That I just would like the idea of it, but I wouldn't actually eat it because that's just not the way I cook. But if I was a farmer, I think I would adjust the way I cook. <laughs> you probably would have to. Well, yeah. and you can adapt recipes to what you have, too. True, to a certain extent. <laughs> Again, that's where the flexibility comes in. I think it's yeah. a mental, a mental I, barrier. I think that's what we do. Uh-huh. Is yeah. we just adapt it, and we're like, oh, mm-hmm. collards are just as good yeah. as spinach. So, and sometimes we buy a package of frozen spinach. Sometimes yeah. we do because spinach and feta pastry thingies sound really good, and yeah. and I want to make some for my son, and he likes spinach better, and so I just buy some. Mm-hmm. When I was a kid, my mom, I mean, I learned to cook from my mom as a teenager, and she is somebody who, she goes to the store to replenish her supply of the things that she always has on hand. And then she makes the food that she makes with that food. And it's really good food, and it's it varies quite a bit, and it does include garden stuff, but... I didn't I didn't grow up buying vegetables at the store like, you know, zucchinis or peppers or things like that. We bought potatoes and onions and carrots at the store. And it wasn't like we couldn't buy anything else, but it was just like there was a standard range of stuff we always had on hand and that's how I learned to cook. Yeah. And uh, I think that helps me be adaptable. Yeah. Oh, about the CSA thing, one thing that that made me think of was when we had a CSA, <laughs> We ran a CSA. Sometimes people wouldn't pick up a, a share and we would bring it home and put the produce in the fridge. And sometimes the produce went bad. <laughs> so I just want to say, you know, to people who are CSA customers, like it's not, you're not a terrible sinner or maybe I'm a terrible sinner too, but mm-hmm. it was actually harder to use up a box of CSA produce because it had it had already been harvested. And when you have it in your garden, 
you can decide, well, I'm not using those onions today and they'll keep and they'll keep for three weeks. You know, they're, they're in the ground. They'll just get bigger. And so there's, I think there's more, it's actually a little more flexible when the stuff is actually out in the garden on plants and you pick it when you need it. So in some ways we do go to the store when we, when we decide what we're making, we just, the store is the garden. I'm speaking with Denise and Sean Breeden-Ost about growing food, preserving food, and eating food. After a short break, we'll talk about what it takes to grow your own dry goods, like beans and grains, and about prepping for the apocalypse, or not. I'm Kate Young. This is Earth Eats. Stay with us. Young here. This is Earth Eats. I had the chance to visit with Sean and Denise during the corn harvest season. They walked me through the steps of getting dry seed corn from the field to the table. The variety of corn they raise grows incredibly high. It towers over our heads. We go in there and we start yanking them down. So you're yanking the ears, not the stuff. Yeah, and as you can see, there's a height issue here. As you grab the husks and peel them back. Peel them back. Snap it off. Make sure it's a sound ear. This is hickory cane corn. It's a white white heirloom corn. I was pretty suspicious about white corn at first because I really like my cornbread to be yellow. But this stuff tastes amazing. So yeah, what we'll do is we shuck it and then we'll stack them loosely in crates and take them inside and let them dry for a good month or two before we grind it. And uh, we still have lots of corn left from last year and the year before. So I have 520-foot rows and then uh, another 100-foot row. It is more than we usually grow. I was worried about what we were going to do with all the corn, but the squirrels kind of solved that problem for us. So I think we'll end up with about eight bushels or so. It's enough to eat and share. And lots of polenta, <laughs> cornbread. It's a tremendous amount of calories that are on each plant, and like it's well adapted to our environment. This last revision on my novel, when I was writing about shucking corn, and I was trying to describe the breaking off of the bottom part of it, I actually called my mom and then called my granny to find out if there was, is there a name for that part you break off? like? Do they have a name for that? And they're like, no, it's just the part you break off. It's like, well, that's not very elegant. So I, I think I end up calling it the stem, which is what it is. But, but I felt like there should be a name for that gesture of breaking the, the bottom and all the shucks off of the corn. It's such a common thing people have to do. But I guess they didn't feel like they had to talk about it. 
the next step was shelling. I used to do this when I was a kid. We used to go in the neighbor's cornfield with feed corn and uh, and pick corn and shell it off and use it for corn fights. So what's involved in a corn fight? Um, you have a bunch of corn that's shelled off the ear and stored in margarine tubs or something and you you have forts built out of things and you you rush out of each other and fling handfuls of corn at each other. Oh, okay, so there's no device. That, it's just your hands. Yeah, it's just throwing corn at each other. <laughs> and then they bring it inside to grind it. They have a grain mill attachment for their champion juicer. It's one of those classic juicers with a heavy-duty motor. I'm going to grind it twice because you have to crack it first. After a second pass through the grinder, they sift the cornmeal through a mesh sieve, and it's ready to use for polenta or grits or cornbread. For this coarsely ground cornmeal, Denise uses a hot water cornbread recipe, which you can find at eartheats.org. We tried it this week, and I highly recommend it. When I first heard that Sean and Denise were growing their own beans and grains, I wanted to hear more about their motivations. Sean said he tried seed corn for the first time a few years ago. He remembered a variety that his grandfather had given them when he was a kid. He looked for something similar and gave it a try. I just wanted to try it, so we put out uh, a plot probably 30 feet wide by 40 feet, and it grew just amazingly well. Once they had the corn, there was the problem of grinding it. We did some in our blender and figured out that was going to be the death of our blender. But then we acquired an attachment for the juicer that we have, and boy, it was amazing. Much sweeter, more corn flavor than store-bought cornmeal. And so then I was hooked, and we tried a different corn the next year. And this year we planted about three times what we've ever planted before. And so was this the first time you'd ever grown your own grain? Yeah. Yeah, and we'd been growing dry beans since at least 2010, maybe a little before that. And did you grow more of those this year as well? We didn't plant more, yeah. but, they, but they thrived better. Yeah. And so do you think of the corn and beans differently? And I, I'm asking because I do. <laughs> and I, I see it as like, oh, that's moving towards self-sufficiency because if you can grow your own protein and you're not raising animals, it just makes me think of a more self-sufficient model that you could survive on that or something. There's a feeling to it that's kind of satisfying that way. It doesn't feel like so much we could survive on it as we're able to provide some of our sort of staple foods, which, I mean, the potatoes and the sweet potatoes are staples, if anything is. But it breaks down a barrier in my mind between sort of dry goods and produce mm -hmm. and makes it so that, well, actually, there's not a line there that says you can't cross it, you know, as a home gardener. You're mm -hmm. just, 
I just always assumed, I mean, I assumed that to grow your own corn, you had to have, I mean, like for cornmeal, you had to have acres and acres of corn, you know, it just seemed like it would be this huge endeavor and, and it's not. Mm. Um, <laughs> I was it, really surprised by how, how much cornmeal there is from an ear of corn. And the beans, I think, weren't as, I didn't have as much of a sense of a, of that being different because when I was a kid, my, my aunts um, grew horticulture beans and my grandparents had grown, grown beans as well. And I think a good part of it is that it's like the tomatoes and peppers. We just prefer the taste of these beans and this cornmeal over what we can buy. We do buy a lot of grains and beans, mm -hmm. you know, because we want to have red split lentils and we want to have black eyed peas and we want, you know, green split peas and lentils and and black beans and brown rice and, you know, lots of things that we mm -hmm. we appreciate the variety of. So we're not at all trying to replace all of that. But it's kind of nice to know that we can grow that stuff, too. And when you've grown the corn, has it lasted you through the year? Oh, yeah. Yeah, more than through the year. And then this year you grew more than you needed. We did. Yeah. <laughs> that was Sean. That was Sean's decision-making process. <laughs> it's not mathematical. Well, I, I have, I've always been uh, one to plant way more than we need because I love giving away stuff. And I just like how generous the land is with its abundance. And, and this year the squirrels got more corn than we did. We shared quite a bit. <laughs> they had a rough year. They did. They, they, did. <laughs> they didn't have any nuts, and so they got fat on corn this year. Yeah, Sean would be standing there by the kitchen sink and look out the window, and he's like, they're just running up the stalks. They're just running up the stalks and eating the corn. I mean, it was just be like five squirrels irate. out there, <laughs> and like kernels flying everywhere, and and then the birds come in. And... But still, we've got more than we can possibly eat. Mm. Well, well, we've got more than we will eat. And if you can store it from year to year, like, do you feel like it's stable enough that it's fine? The two-year-old corn is fine. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh yeah, we're still eating. The older corn mm -hmm. it's really it keeps really well we we keep it whole on the ear partly because it keeps better that way and then when it's when we want some we shell it off the off the ear into a bowl and pour it through a, the grinder grind it through twice and then sift it and then usually i make enough for maybe a quart and a half of cornmeal at a time and i'll only use a cup to two cups when I'm making corn cornbread, so I put the rest in the freezer and use that as we want to, so that it, it gets gets ground close to when it's used. Well, I guess I want to get back to my other question about the idea of self-sufficiency or survival. You know, I, I feel like it's come up a lot this year, pretty much as soon as the pandemic hit and grocery stores had less on the shelves than normal, and people were at home more than normal, some, not all, but some, that all of a sudden I started hearing, at least in the media circles that I'm paying attention to, which granted is limited and food focused, you know, there was just a lot of talk about, we got to grow our own food and I'm planting a raised bed this year because it's time to sustain ourselves. And I, having grown some food myself for the past 
you know, 15 years, I was like, okay, um, do you have any idea what you're talking about? Just because, one, it's not that easy, even if you do know what you're doing. And two, I just, I, I just feel very suspicious of that kind of thinking of like, you know, we have a lot of canned goods stored in our basement that we've, you know, put away. And sometimes when people see it, they're like, oh, I'm coming to your house if there's a, you know, crisis or something. And I'm like, okay, fine, because that's what's going to happen is it's all going to be shared and be gone in like two days because what are you going to do if you got everything you need? Like, how are you going to defend that or what? You know, I don't know. It just, there's just a lot of things that come up for me. And I wanted to know if you guys had thought through any of those kinds of things when you start to think about self-sufficiency or survival or prepping or any of those <laughs> terms. Every year we go into the wintertime and I'm like, well, if it snows so much that we're snowed in for three months, we won't starve, and, mm -hmm. you know, because we've got a hundred squash on the shelf above the cabinets or something. It's like we might turn orange. So yeah, we have that. We we have that feeling. It's just not a. It's not the. It's not the primary motivation. It's one of the byproducts. I think it's a lot of it's curiosity. Mm -hmm. It's like I wonder if we could grow beans. I wonder if we could grow corn. Sean Sean planted rice this year, and it was like. I wonder if we could grow rice. I'm going to try it, you know, and we had a little bit of rice and maybe we'll grow a little bit more rice in the future. And so it's more like it adds to a, to a bank of knowledge or to a sense of knowing and understanding and learning that's kind of an end in itself. Mm -hmm. And it's a relationship in itself with this place and the land and the plants. And then the sort of thing about like, someday when everything falls apart, we're going to need this knowledge. It's like, well, yeah, I mean, that's, that's quite possible that we might need that knowledge for that sort of reason, but it's not the motivation. It's a, it's an after effect. That sense of competence in the world, it feels good more than it is rational, I think. What I've noticed is that the peop most people they pick which thing they want they pick which thing they want to not be able to get anymore after the apocalypse like you know for me i can i'll be you know sitting around daydreaming about apocalypse of <laughs> which is something that i've done and and think well you know i know how to live without electricity and you know i know how to build a composting toilet so for me i can imagine being very satisfied and smug in a post-apocalyptic future in which we don't have electricity and everybody else is in hysterics because they don't have a TV and I'm fine. Mm -hmm. But that's nonsense. I mean, for mm -hmm. one thing, here we are in the middle of a pandemic and we had this sort of crisis in our society. And what I ended up needing to do was not how to live without electricity, but how to meet with people on Zoom, which is <laughs> which I was much less well prepared for. Mm -hmm. So so in the sort of larger world beyond food, I think we kind of pick and choose our fantasies of collapse to be something that works well for our particular quirks. And I'm not real comfortable with that kind of self-servingness. Um, seems like in a fantasy life, self-servingness would be okay, but 
but it, I, get, <laughs> I get caught up on the logic. Um, but also it, it really seems to always come down to this idea of the nuclear family as self-sufficient, like mm-hmm. that we will provide everything we need. And I just think that is always a lie. Mm-hmm. I, I do not think a nuclear family can provide everything it needs not in a way that I want to live. You need community and and you need it for human relationships. But you also just that's just the way the world works. It's there's not a there's not a little bubble around us that we can just live in. I don't know, I was trying to think of, you know, what is it that we need that we couldn't do ourselves? Well, we need a stable climate. <laughs> we cannot grow food to eat no matter how good we are at it if the weather goes haywire mm. and we can't possibly create a stable climate by ourselves. So, you know, even on that level, it's just impossible to insulate yourself from the effects of things. And then it's, then there's the question of, you know, what do we do if we're sitting here eating our sweet potato pie and cornbread and our neighbors are starving, are we going to feel happy? I wouldn't feel happy. Mm-hmm. We would invite them to dinner. Yeah. And then everybody would be at our house for dinner and then, our food would go pretty fast, and then we'd all have to figure out what we're going to do next. Squirrels. Yeah, we do have. There are a lot of squirrels, and they're really well fed. So <laughs> they they're fed on green peaches and blueberries and corn. So. I think for me, the self sufficiency. It's more important to trust in community and and knowing that things will be available. They may be in short supply, but as long as we're sharing things, uh, I think everybody will have hopefully what they need. The growing of the food also creates more, it creates our entertainment and our exercise and our education and our time spent together. Mm -hmm. You know, there's all this, if all we got out of it was food, I I can't even imagine that. I don't don't even know what that would be like, but Mm -hmm. there's so much else that we gain from doing that Mm -hmm. in the world of being in relation to the rest of life and Mm -hmm. then also in relationship with each other. And one thing Sean was saying earlier, we were having a conversation about the self-sufficiency thing, um, is, is the idea that if the real kind of self-sufficiency or self self-reliance that would be smart to be doing like the place that this is pointing that pe- when people are saying oh no we have to grow gardens now what actually makes sense is for communities to start talking together about how they can be more able to support themselves without you know if if california produce is not available for a year or three years or if you know something else happens how would we take care of one another in that situation how could we make it possible as a community for farmland in this area to be used growing food for people instead of being used for growing commodity crops to feed livestock which is what most of it is in now there's a lot of farmland here. We could be growing food to feed people here, but because of the food economy, that that's not mm-hmm. financially sustainable for farmers. And so yeah. as, a, as an area, you can look at things like how do we work on food security together or how do we do more of the stuff that we need in general together. But that's really different from doing it as a nuclear family. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I think that 
part of the conversations that I was hearing was, we need to. Let's start growing food in community gardens. And even so, it felt it felt naive and missing something. You said the thing about we, we, it makes sense to trust in community, and that takes a lot of work, too. The community isn't there. It has to actually be built and maintained, and that's kind of what I woke up to, is that's what we don't have. I'm just thinking about that and the naivete piece that, yeah, it is kind of naive for somebody to say, you know, who's never gardened before, to say, I'm putting in a garden right now so that I can grow my food this year because there's a pandemic. They're definitely going to learn a lot. And I think actually being naive may kind of be a prerequisite for starting to do some of these things. It's, you know, we, we kind of, we're not that good, at least I don't feel like we are in this culture, at deciding to do something that we think is really hard and probably won't work. You know, and so we have to have this this mm. optimistic. I mean, Sean is Sean is a temperamentally very optimistic person, and he's the one who can farm. You know, when when we've been farming, when we did farming for for market, it was much easier for him because every spring he he goes out and he's like, "Wow, look at all the great food we're going to grow." And I go out and say, "Oh my God, what's going to go wrong this year?" And I wouldn't start the thing. And yet, because he starts the thing, I get to participate in it and learn from it and find out that actually a lot of good food does happen and a lot of things do go wrong. And so I think that that naive flinging into it can lead to good places and can, you know, if people kind of stick with it when they when it all falls apart and, and try again and learn something. I've been speaking with Denise Breeden-Ost and Sean Breeden-Ost about growing food, processing staple foods, and what the idea of self-sufficiency means to them, especially in the middle of a pandemic. Check out eartheats.org for some photos of their corn and bean harvest, and you'll also find Denise's hot water cornbread recipe. Check it out at eartheats.org. That's it for our show this week. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Take care. The Earth Eats team includes Aobon Binder, Mark Chilla, Abraham Hill, Josephine McRobbie, the IU Food Institute, Harvest Public Media, and me, Renee Reed. Special thanks this week to Denise Breeden-Ost, and Sean Breeden-Ost. Our theme music is composed by Aaron Toby and performed by Aaron and Matt Toby. Additional music on the show comes to us from the artists at Universal Productions Music. Earth Eats is produced and edited by Kate Young, and our executive producer is John Bailey. Mm-hmm.